0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast.
1: On Worldview this week, the seeming inevitability of Donald Trump's nomination as Republican candidate has been creating immense pressures inside the party. On the other candidates to come up with a common strategy against him, on leaders to find some way of accommodating themselves to the appalling prospect of his election, and even on Donald Trump to reach out to other parts of the party and, God forbid, perhaps to tone down his message. In yet another EU country, the political establishment is reeling under pressure from angry voters. Austria has just held the first round of its presidential election and has put two outsider candidates into the second round. A far-right, anti-immigrant politician allied to Marine Le Pen and Gert Wilders in France and Holland, and a former leader of the Greens. Meanwhile, South Korea waits nervously for North's Kim Jong-un to test another nuclear bomb, their fifth illegal test in breach of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Its hawkish president has suffered a major parliamentary defeat. I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. I'll be joined by our correspondents in Berlin and Washington, and I'm just back from Korea with a report from its demilitarised zone. Subscribe on iTunes and on Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. First to Washington and Simon Carswell. Donald Trump's been making a lot of noise about the unfairness of the Republican Party system of allocating delegates, and he has a bit of a point. It's certainly true that the party establishment has been doing its level best to defeat him before the convention, and if not at it, does it look like they'll succeed?
0: Well, it looks like it's going to come down to two states. Uh, They're going to come. It's going to come down to Indiana on May third and California on June seventh. Those are the two bellwether states to watch, and the number of delegates that uh, he needs to win to get to that uh, magic number of twelve thirty-seven delegates, the majority, to take the nomination at the first ballot at the convention and before to avoid a floor fight at the convention. At the moment, he is at 844 delegates. So if he does well, he's expected to do very well in the five states that vote today in the northeast. The so-called Acela primaries named after the Amtrak rail corridor that links them. Uh, He's expected to do well, particularly in the big states, uh, Pennsylvania and and Maryland today. So he's going to come out of that with yet more momentum uh, out of those five states on the back of the momentum he already built with his landslide in New York last week. Uh, The the Republican establishment are certainly still trying to stop him. You have a lot of the Republican Party who have backed Ted Cruz, the Texas senator. And now we've seen Ted Cruz and John Kasich, the Ohio governor, who's the only other remaining candidate in the race, come up with this pack where they've decided not to campaign in certain states so really they can concentrate the anti-Trump opposition around one or the other um in three states. Uh Kasich has backed out of Indiana, he's not going to campaign there and uh Ted Cruz has said he's not going to campaign in Oregon and New Mexico. So the hope is that they'll be able to grab enough delegates to stop Trump getting to the 1237.
1: But in a way that's a sign of desperation and and uh, it does seem to be falling apart at the seams or already with with suggestions that the candidates are saying, OK, we may be pulling out, but we're not stopping stopping our campaigns in these states.
0: And that was certainly the case of John Kasich yesterday. He was surrounded in a, amid, amid a huddle of journalists. He was asked, well, does that mean you're you're not going to you're not going to campaign in Indiana? Where he says, well, I still want people to vote for me in Indiana. So I'm sure the Cruz campaign weren't terribly happy with his decision to say that. So. It's not there isn't the same there isn't a level of unity between those two candidates to stop Trump and certainly looks like it is falling apart. Any pact that did exist between them uh, that was created over the weekend. So Trump has a a remarkable momentum uh, coming out of New York. And I think you'll see uh, you'll see his campaign grow even more after the five states vote today.
1: Now, some Republican leaders have begun to reconcile themselves to the fact that Trump will get the nomination and uh, have been talking about the party backing whoever wins and telling people they're going to have to get their heads around uh, the possibility that Trump is, is the leader. This is dividing activists quite deeply to the point where one writer in the New York Times has talked about breaking friendships. Um, is it, it's, it's about the survival of the party, so it's not really surprising that this is really causing quite con- considerable um, dissension.
0: Well, it is. And you're looking at uh, you have Rince Priebus, who's the who's really the main uh, Republican Party official. He's the chairman of the Republican National Committee. He's the one who's saying we need to back the winner here. The problem that the Republican Party has is in the anti-Trump or never Trump movement. They have a certain amount of legitimacy where they can say, well, if Donald Trump doesn't get to the 1237 majority then he doesn't have legitimacy to stand as the Republican nominee. And then the opposition can then say, well, he's not the nominee or he can't be the nominee because he hasn't got the required number of delegates. So that's causing all sorts of problems within the party. There is also the other risk that if Trump is uh, so disillusioned with the process, which he's claimed is rigged and crooked, and he's been very aggressively attacking uh, the nominating process, he could decide if he has a plurality of of delegates come the convention in cleveland in july but not a majority he could say well this is unfair um you've seen polls of republican voters show that the majority feel that if Trump has the most delegates but not a majority come the convention, then he should be the nominee. So the party's having to juggle lots of tensions, and there's an awful lot of tension within the party because many conservatives uh, and many of the Republican establishment feel very uncomfortable with Trump as the nominee, uh, not least because the polls, all the polls show in head-to-heads against Hillary Clinton, the likely Democratic nominee, that he's going to lose uh, uh, by quite substantial margin against her. So the party, there's a, there's an awful lot of dissension, dissension in the party at the moment.
1: But he has actually had some meetings with the party leadership.
0: He has. He's had regular meetings with the likes of Rince Priebus. Um, Rince Priebus has come out and said, well, he's called for, for unity within the party to back Trump if he is the nominee. Uh, and I think the difficulty for the party is, is if he falls short of those delegates, then that's gonna cause uh, this floor fight at the convention. And after the first ballot, where all the pledged delegates must vote uh, as they were awarded in the state by state primaries and caucuses, after the first ballot, if it goes to a second or a third ballot, then they're free to vote as they wish. And that's where Ted Cruz and John Kasich see their opportunity to grab the nomination from Trump, even though he has beat the, uh, he has beat them in the popular vote, he beat them in the pledge delegate count uh, and uh, and the likes of john Kasich has only won one state so that's what's causing this level of tension and trump certainly is trying his best to uh, keep the party on side and the party likewise is trying to make sure that trump doesn't go off and lead a potential independent third party bid which would really hand the presidency uh, for a third successive term to the democrats
1: now trump seems to recognize that he's now reached a point in the campaign where he has to reach out to wider swathes of the party and indeed to begin to think about how he could possibly appeal uh, to Democrats. And he's hired a new campaign manager, a sort of Henry Higgins, to work on his, his uh, comportment, a guy called Paul Manafort. And some are suggesting we're going to see a new Trump, uh, a, a kinder, gentler Trump. Well, what is the true Trump? And is it likely we're going to see this switch? Well, you've seen hints that he is
0: going to go that way. was notable, particularly last week in his victory party after the New York landslide at Trump Tower, uh, you saw a little bit more mooted Donald Trump, uh, and certainly it it was also the case after the Florida primary in March, where his big victory down there knocked Marco Rubio out of the race. You saw a much more um, measured Donald Trump, and that's led many people to believe, well, is this like his book, his Art of the Deal, where... At the, at the beginning when you're negotiating a deal, you take extreme positions. And as you come towards the handshake on the deal, you moderate your position. And he was asked about that at that time, you know, is this what you're doing? Is this, what you're, is this where you're going to? Are you becoming a more moderate, knowing that you need to come in from these extremes to close the deal? Uh, and he has accepted that he is uh, certainly having to uh, broaden the party's support. He said, well, I've brought so many more people into the Republican party during this primary process. And he believes that he can unite more of the party if he is the nominee. But I think that remains to be seen because in particular after his victory party in New York at Trump Tower, he was very quickly going back to calling Ted Cruz, lying Ted Cruz. And just yesterday at a rally in Rhode Island, he was having to go with John Kasich for the way he eats. So I think old habits die hard at Donald Trump. And I think he's still very much in the extreme, but employing the likes of Paul Manafort. Shows that Trump has to play, even though he's an outsider, he has to play the inside game. He needs someone like Manafort. Manafort is an experienced political strategist. He worked on the contested convention back in 1976 uh, involving Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford. So he knows what needs to be done and the horse trading that needs to be done to win over delegates at a convention. So I think that that's a recognition by Trump that he needs to moderate his own tactics. But he's finding it very, very difficult, as each of his rallies over the last few days has shown.
1: And the truth is that Donald Trump doesn't do nice. It'll be very difficult for him to to switch roles.
0: Well, I think it will. And I think while um, he's He's playing these kind of nasty games and um, throwing insults. I think that's really going to feed uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, and she has certainly focused for more her attention <clears throat> more on the Republicans rather than on her Democratic challenger Bernie Sanders. She's really focusing on the election in November and showing that uh, Donald Trump is a very divisive figure. Um, he's nasty. He he's he's insulting, and that his policies are highly contentious and will divide the country. So she's doing, she's making hay in the back of, of his of his uh, tactics at the moment. So I think it's going to be very difficult for him to come back in from that. And Paul Manafort said at a, at a, at a Republican Party meeting last week that he said privately that this was an act that Donald Trump was performing for the Republican primary. So that's led to some, uh, certainly led to accusations from Ted Cruz that this is just a game that Donald Trump is playing and that he's not someone that can be trusted. So You have Trump trying to pivot a little bit for the general election and also pivot to unite more of the party. But he still hasn't locked down the nomination. And I think until that happens, you're still going to see a very angry Donald Trump. And uh, the insults are going to continue to fly.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. When Austria shocked her EU partners back in the early 2000s by elevating Jörg Haider's far-right Freedom Party into coalition, In some ways, it was because the electoral success of the far-right was completely unknown in Europe since the Second World War. Not so anymore. Today, the likes of far-right politicians like Marine Le Pen and Gert Wilders may also be poised to enter government within a short span of time. Then there's the Swedish Democrats and the true Finns, already minorities supporting governments in their respective countries. And both Poland and Hungary are led by anti-immigrant authoritarian parties. The Austrians are now not bucking a trend this time, but conforming to it. Voters on Sunday in presidential elections rejected establishment politics for a radical, almost neo-Nazi party. Derek Scaly has been watching developments from Berlin. Derek, what's the mood of the country? Um, predominantly fears of immigration...
2: Yes, uh, it seems that uh, that there's been huge dissatisfaction with this current government. It's a grand coalition, centre-right, centre-left, social democrats and conservatives for pretty much 10 years, since 2008. And what's happened now is the... The immigration question, uh, the refugee question, has really acted as a catalyst, um, and the government is basically running scared. The Freedom Party is now the largest party. They're opposed to all kinds of any kind of immigration, and the government, in the last couple of months, realised that that was going down well with the voters. Austria, you may remember, got ninety thousand people last year, which uh, you notice in a country of 8 million people. So the government performed an about-face and suddenly took a, a tough line on migration. But voters appear on Sunday to have said, well, why would I choose the copy if I can vote for the original? And um, no, but Hofer of the Freedom Party is very much the original. He's one of the key ideologues in the party behind its uh, anti-migrant course.
1: Yeah. Uh, Hofer has... Re- taken 35% in in the the first round of the presidential election, uh, putting him into the second round and now facing off against Alexander van der Bellen, uh, a a former Green who got uh, 21%, is it? And the two main parties, the Social Democrats and the People's Party, uh, are off the ballot paper for the second round. Yes, this is what people are
2: saying. It's sort of an earthquake almost, that sort of the political middle ground, the centre, the two traditionally largest parties that have governed in Austria pretty much since the end of the Second World War have just been annihilated. Um, Now, of course this is a presidential election as opposed to a parliamentary election. So many people have said, well, the voters are using this as a referendum of uh, dissatisfaction with the government. But um, the Freedom Party is euphoric. They're saying this has changed the, the post-war order in Austria. And um, their their proposal, so Austria first and Muslims don't belong to Austria, is now the mainstream. And their, their challenge now is to build on that in the coming month and then head to... Uh, parliamentary elections which are scheduled for 2018 but the way things are looking many people are now talking about them being brought forward to next year so you would have a very uh, serious vote there on how a country at the heart of europe feels about uh political mainstream answers to today's challenges
1: now talk to me a bit about norbert hoover uh what sort of a politician is he and what sort of a party is he leading
2: well, it's quite simple. He's the type of person Austrians can imagine being president. And um, the Freedom Party is led by a man called Heinz-Christian Strache, who I've uh, met several times and watched in action. And he goes down very well with a certain type of uh, Austrian voter. He's um, he likes lots of gel in his hair, sunbed. He he likes uh, simple. Uh, simple banging on the table sentences. Mr. Hofer, and that that goes down well with some people, but it it, it scares off a lot of other people. Mr. Hofer is a far camera individual um he he carries a walking stick after a paragliding accident in his youth and um but behind this calm exterior he's very much he's an engineer but he's he's also as as hard as anyone else and he he just has found a way of packaging it in a way that appeals to more people than strache could ever appeal to strache is basically an advertising man he he's a he's a great snake oil salesman, his critics would call him whereas hofer is is more respectable, but he's made no uh, doubt that you know look, I opposed. Uh, EU membership for Austria, I would put up walls around Austria to stop migrant flows from the Balkan route. And uh, on election night, he said, you'd be amazed what's possible if I become president, which um, struck fear into the hearts of of Austria's political mainstream.
1: Well, will the the Austrians actually vote for him in the second round? Presumably, uh, Van der Bellen will will pick up a lot of uh, supporters who, who are scared by this.
2: Yes, it's a bit like the situation when um, Mr. Le Pen uh, of uh, the Front National in France got into the second round of the French elections and everyone then, whether they liked it or not, had to rally around the alternative. And Mr. Van der Bellen is a left-wing Liberal green professor and um, 72 years old, um, kind of, he looks the part, but he still looks a bit shaken that he's actually made it so far in this campaign. All the other parties, the centre-right and the centre-left government parties have said they will support him. But so far in the the two days since the um, result, uh, we haven't really seen how they're planning to support him. They're still uh, licking their wounds themselves. So they have a month to turn this around and um, Mr. van der will be the alternative for, let's say, the, the other Austria that is shocked about the notion of a Freedom Party, left wing, a right-wing extremist uh, president. Um, but um, the Freedom Party is hoping to capitalise on the, the non-voters. 40% of people didn't turn out to vote in the first round, and they think that they can actually win over the non-voters to their camp and say, listen, that's the establishment candidate, the establishment has gotten Austria into a mess, particularly on migration, vote for the anti establishment candidate get him into the Hofburg Palace and um, anything could happen after that
1: Well you were talking about the elections which may, may be as soon as, as next year. Would, would uh, a president have a particular powers in relation to forming a government uh, when, when that election happens?
2: Oh definitely. and um, the, the Austrian president, while he has a representational role similar to Ireland and many other countries in Europe, he does have the power to dismiss the government. And some people have said in their nightmare fantasy that um that if Mr Hofer got into power he could actually dismiss uh the two the grand coalition of centre right and centre left. It's it's on the on one hand it's unlikely, but he could just subtly start to undermine the government and present himself as the alternative. Mr Hofer already Um, uh, Late last year, he joined the Freedom Party in filing charges against Chancellor Werner Feynman of the Social Democrats, charging him as an enemy of the state for leading Austria into this um, migration crisis. So he's a very creative man and um, he seems quite happy to be the front runner for the Freedom Party. They seem to have found an alternative to Mr. Strache, who, while very effective, he's a very divisive figure, whereas Mr. Hofer... Uh, wants to uh, cut a cut a more modest moderate uh line as a as a, a walking stick carrying president and but he seems to have great things and great things planned if he gets into the Hofburg in a month's
1: time when we saw the rise of Haider back in, in the, the late 1990s, initially both the uh, Social Democrats and the People's Party said they wouldn't coalesce with him under any circumstances. The position is, is that uh, the Freedom Party has now already surpassed the vote that it got uh, at that time and in a, in a general election could probably exceed uh, 35% uh, of, of the vote. Does that mean that there is a real prospect of them being in government?
2: Yes, this is the issue because, uh, of course, back then the Freedom Party was the junior coalition partner, but if the opinion polls from today um, would be reflected in an election result. And we should point out opinion polls in Austria have an unhappy history. Nobody saw this uh, result for Mr. Hofer coming. So opinion polls are always slightly questionable. But if the Freedom Party uh, opinion poll support was translated into parliamentary elections, they would be the one doing the bidding. They would be asking for a junior partner, a Social Democrats or a Conservative People's Party, to join them, and they would be dictating the terms. Uh, whether or not the two smaller Parties At the moment, with about 20% of the vote, would be in a, in a position to dictate the terms of anything remaining to be seen. And uh, already in both parties, uh, the Social Democrats and the Conservative People's Party, there's talk about we need to get rid of our leaders. We need to re, regroup, rethink, because uh, the political centre is, um, is breaking away.
1: Um, but would either of them actually share power uh, or support a, a government from a minority position?
2: At the moment, the leadership in both parties are saying no, but um, there are many people sawing on the chairs of the two leaders, so the two parties could look very different. Uh, It's the People's Party who worked with uh, the Freedom Party in the past, um, but in some of of Austria's regions, even the Social Democrats is working with the Freedom Party. Now, of course, in Vienna, they say things are different and uh, national politics isn't local regional politics, but... um, yeah, we've seen in the past that taboos have been broken in Austrian politics and uh, what seemed like a, a blip in 2000 has now become, um, has, has now, the, the model has now f- spread out across Europe. So the notion of a right-wing populist party heading into government, uh, particularly with the rise of uh, Marine Le Pen, is now long, no longer as unthinkable as it would have been um, a decade and a half ago.
1: Thank you very much, Derek. You're listening to The Irish Times. Last week, the enlightened management of the Irish Times let me out of the office for once, and I flew to South Korea for a journalist-sponsored conference on the denuclearization of the peninsula. On Friday, we took a trip to the border with North Korea from where I sent this report. In the tourist shop here in Korea's demilitarized zone, more commonly known as the DMZ, you can buy a framed piece of supposedly genuine DMZ barbed wire to hang on your wall. The blood is not included. Then there's the DMZ black bean chocolate that I'll bring back for colleagues in the office in Dublin and a UN fridge magnet and some Camel cigarettes and regular tourist tap for the 100,000 plus visitors who come here each year to see this throwback to the Cold War. It's much like Berlin's Checkpoint Charlie in the old days except of course that here the Cold War is still going on. Oh and you could also bring back a hefty Hessian sack of genuine DMZ produced rice but I'm worried it'll tax the generosity of Korean Airlines' one-bag policy. Apart from the shop and the car park, the main feature of this enclave in the DMZ is a large observation platform. It looks like a glass-fronted theatre. Along a wall beside the platform, there is a line of those slot machine telescopes that you usually see on beach promenades. The platform faces out from the hill over scrub and fields to a line of barbed wire and a couple of kilometres away, where a well-manned North Korean guard post faces us. These days, few North Koreans try this deadly route to escape the mad, bad regime of Kim Jong-un. They prefer to take the long route through China instead, but they still come in dribs and drabs in their thousands every year. The DMZ is four kilometres wide. It stretches the length of the 400-kilometre border between north and south. Technically, it's part of the south, but only a few farmers tend the rice paddies inside the zone. Other people need permission to pass the barbed wire fences to special observation sites. A mile north, and today shrouded in fog, is the village of Panmunjom. It's also known as the Joint Security Area. In this village, a pavilion was constructed for the signing of the armistice between North and South, and it has been used over the years by the two Koreas for diplomatic engagements. It is now the only portion of the DMZ where North and South Korean forces stand face to face. Today it's closed to ordinary tourists as several hundred 80-year-olds are visiting. They're veterans of the Korean War and among them is Dubliner Leonard Mather. 140 Irishmen died in the Korean War serving in the British, American, and other forces under a UN mandate. Half a mile south of where we are standing is the entrance to tunnel number three. Discovered by South Korea in 1974 it is one of four North Korean infiltration tunnels that were found and sealed. This one is 1.6 kilometers long and could have funnelled 30,000 troops an hour into the south undetected. Two metres wide, 70 metres below ground, you can visit this primitive, musty tunnel by walking down a steep 400-metre passage. Be warned that the return will test the fittest, and most definitely the very unfit Irish times. Tensions between north and south these days are up and down. At the moment, they're particularly precarious. In January, Pyongyang created international uproar with its fourth nuclear bomb test in clear breach of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Even North Korea's traditional ally, China, is upset with them these days and is now backing expanded UN sanctions. Two weeks ago, the North tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. It was a bit of a damp squib, but there are persistent rumours in Seoul that Kim will shortly order a fifth bomb test. But in the South, it's quietly acknowledged that the North has already crossed an important psychological barrier. This basket-case regime, barely able to feed a population that is kept in line by ruthless police, mass observation of its people and a string of brutal concentration camps, has moved from being a potential aspirant nuclear power to an actual one. And one run by an unpredictable 33-year-old who has shown a willingness to play the nationalist card and games of military provocation to distract popular attention from failures at home. It's little wonder that China, too, is uneasy. It must balance precariously between allowing the North a free hand, with the possibility it could trigger an all-out North-South confrontation, and contributing to international pressure, notably sanctions, that could bring down the regime. In the South, there are disagreements over how to relate to the North. The policies of President Park Jun-hee have been hawkish. She wants to discourage contact and dialogue, and she's keen to see a new string of US anti-missile batteries installed as protection. Her party has conducted witch-hunts against socialists and communists, whether they're supporters of the North or not. But she's just lost parliamentary elections. The opposition Munji party is more willing to talk, and practices a policy akin to Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik in the time before the Berlin Wall fell. There is speculation, perhaps more in hope than expectation, The growing isolation of the North and the recent closure of its joint economic zone project with the South at Kaesong may push Kim to announce serious economic reform when in May the ruling party holds its first Congress since 1980. The party's Gyeonggi ideology, after all, promises a simultaneous pursuit of military and economic progress. To date, it has been all the former and little of the latter. A rebalancing is long overdue, but hope here springs eternal. Meanwhile, as we drive through the official gates of the DMZ back to Seoul, we see the long line of guard towers and barbed wire fencing stretching out endlessly along the right-hand side of the main road, so reminiscent of Second World War prison camps. Behind them, a bleak landscape of muddy paddy fields disappears into the fog. Somewhere in that fog is a land history left behind. This is Patrick Smith in the DMZ for Worldview. Thanks to Simon Carswell, Derek Scully, to our producer Declan Conlon and Rob O'Sullivan on sound. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.